Never in the history of the world have the merchants of obscenity had available to them the modern facilities for disseminating this filth. Disseminating this filth. The onslaught of the communist masters of deceit. Bingo. Sluts. Inco. Comma. Sluts. Inco. Comma. Sluts. Inco. Comma. Kami dudes was a mistake. Pinko Kami sluts forever. <laughs> well, I doze off. That's what happened. We were scared and lost without your direction. Good. I need to keep everyone feeling dependent on me. It was like the secession of Ivan the Terrible. <laughs> I was going to tell the truth about the Greeks. That was my first thing, which I did. <laughs> you weren't there for that. <laughs> but um oh hey steven so before we denigrated the memory of bunny i oh yeah we we've already made up we love her well before that i didn't mention it i was harassing her oh doing some male workplace harassment of female fellow employees by calling her and trying to video chat her to wake her up <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I was discussing that I have a journalistic scoop. Oh, what? Well, I'll, I'll look to back. deal with Dogecoin? No, not at oh, all man. to deal with Dogecoin. <laughs> um, no, I have a scoop. It's actually a uh, real human story, a look back of a major event of our times, which is uh, last night. For some reason, for Mother's Day, some family friends came over to our house and we all had drinks and we talked. And I asked them about an event they all went through at the same time. Very historically important event called Three Mile Island. It's the American Chernobyl. You know about Three Mile Island? No. Mm. That is the largest nuclear disaster in United States history. And my mom, my dad, were both roommates in college. And they had two friends who are married now and are family friends of ours who were also their roommates in college. And they all uh, lived within 10 miles of Three Mile Island when the meltdown occurred. Mm. I, I, had a, I was just talking to them about uh, their experiences of going through that. Also tempered by the fact that they were a bunch of stupid, drugged out hippies at the time. And it's an interesting uh, thing they went through. So that was uh, just what I was talking about as a... Uh, so you're saying there's going to be a large population of drugged out hippies that get cancer. Well, what I'm saying actually... Uh, from the I, Chernobyl of... The our, Chernobyl of America. Of America. I am sitting in a uh, room. Amerinobyl. I am sitting in my childhood kitchen right now. I am looking at a plant that was a plant in my mother's dorm room 
during Three Mile Island. And basically her teacher, like for this like natural sciences required like core course she had to take for her major, came in and was like, hey, uh, I don't know if anyone knows about nuclear power, but the long and short of it is I am packing up my wife and children after I leave this class, which is going to end immediately after I stop talking. And we're going to leave this area because this whole area might be decimated. And you should also do that. And you should pack as if you're never coming back. And that is what my mother was told in her class. So she came back to my father and uh, their roommates who were all uh, getting extremely high at the time. And my mother somehow managed to communicate that they needed to all leave. And so what they did, they had all these plants in their dorm room and they lined their dorm room with aluminum foil and wrapped everything in aluminum foil because they thought that would help and they left the plants and then they went camping and those plants are still alive today and i'm staring at one right now nuclear foil plants yeah yeah absolutely that's Uh, beautiful yeah and a bunch of other things came of that for example they had a somewhat spoiled chicken in the fridge and they packed that chicken up. <laughs> and they kept the chicken. And the chicken, we mean this chicken was no, well, they such it. a brat. <laughs> yeah, well, it was it, a very rancid chicken, but they packed it up. It grew up. It as had food, children. And they went driving. And that was the last time my mother ate meat. And that's why I'm a vegetarian to this day, because my mom didn't eat meat when she had me and uh, raised me vegetarian. Braised you vegetarian. Braised, raised. Yeah, but yeah. anyway, Three yeah, Mile Island, America's Chernobyl. Scheme. It's all been a scheme to raise you up as vegetarian fed. Yeah. Or, I don't know. Aliens. So funny how was uh, sacrificing a lamb to Zeus or whatever you people do. Well, if you're referring to Greek Easter last weekend, I didn't do it because I was at a uh, wedding of uh, my boyfriend's, uh, his brother. So I actually had a good old Midwest American time in Oklahoma. Okay. So... That was really interesting. I did have this really great experience where I got an Uber one of the days I was there and the vehicle that pulled up was a like mud splattered Dodge Ram. I get in there and she's like, you can sit up front. And she is literally chewing tobacco and like spitting into a cup. (laughs) And I was like, hell, this rules. And then she was like, you seem cool as shit, want to get high. And so um, I continued my streak of uh, taking drugs from strangers. Yeah, I actually, you know what, uh, I will say I uh, bought Skull recently uh, for the first time uh, in in recent times. I, I am experienced with Skull. Mm-hmm. But I bought it for the first time in a while. And let me say, lovely experience. The bumpkins know what they're talking about. They do know. So shout out to that Uber driver. She was a highlight of my time in Oklahoma. It was interesting also because the way I got to Oklahoma was in an RV with my boyfriend's family. 
Oh, cool. So um, put in some time with his fam. And I got to live a little bit of the van life. So uh, that was fun. You know, it is cool, I think, to remember that you could just drive across the stupid country. It'll take a long time, but it's all connected. <laughs> Buy some except highways. Except Hawaii. Uh, yes, except, except Hawaii. So that was... An American Samoa. Yeah, that was interesting to do. It was funny because we... It's like a 20-hour trip, so we didn't go full blast all the way through. We stopped halfway through and, like, went to a rest stop and, you know, pulled in and, like, parked for the night and slept, right? And, uh, you know, it uh, felt very vulnerable. Like, oh, we're just uh, sitting ducks over here at this rest stop, like uh, some jokers in this uh, oversized vehicle. Well, family's in here. Come get it. <laughs> so it was a nice time to remember all the movies uh, we had all ever seen where people were either killed or abducted at a remote rest area. Because, oh, I just want to be clear. It's not as if my boyfriend's family is experienced RV people, van life oh. people. This was like, we're going to do this for this event. So It doesn't seem advisable. I gotta give props. It really wasn't, could have been much worse. Everyone kept their cool through any like annoyances because the RV that we rented was not perfect. And also, like my family gets together, like there's at least one weird rehashing, relitigating of a years old conflict. Mm. At least one of those that goes Like down. what? Like who makes the best? Like, no, it'll baklava? be like. No, it'll be like, remember that one time in 2002 when so-and-so said so-and-so? <laughs> like, it'll be things like that, like where a very specific conflict will be recalled by one party to another who will say, that's not quite how it happened, devolving into all fights. So his family did not do any of this. Uh, is he Protestant? You know, uh, compared to me, yes, I guess, uh... Well, also not a you're very Greek, religious. so Catholics are Protestant. <laughs> yes, <laughs> compared to you. So, uh, not a very terribly religious family, which is also a fun experience for me. Is you know, this is now like the second time in my life uh, I am meeting a significant other's whole and extended family in some capacity. But my ex's family, very church people, very Jesusy. My current booze people, not so much, which I do like. And not that they're not religious at all. His brother did get married in a, you know, the, the pastor there who gave, well, a little meaningful talk. It wasn't as if that part was meaningful there. There is some some religious belief. But it was nice to be around his family and uh, they're not like drankers. But the reason they're not drankers is not because of some weird Jesus-y thing. <laughs> they're just not. They're just not people who have normalized functional alcoholism. You know? Mm -hmm. so, <laughs> it's, it's nice to just, it's just like, oh, you, you, y'all exist. But it was a lovely time. Also a jarring experience about the... American Midwest and Oklahoma specifically is that there are a ton, a ton, a ton of visual signifiers about Native Americans. I'd say all of the art in the public spaces in Oklahoma City that isn't about the Oklahoma City bombing memorial 
Um, everything else. <laughs> R.I.P. to a real one, right there. Yeah. Everything else is. By which we mean Timothy McVeigh. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Not the uh, children he murdered. Yeah. Everything else, though, is like a buffalo or a like whatever, where it's like they're signifying, "Hi, hi, we're Native Americans are around," and you do you drive. We drove right through uh, Cherokee Nation, right next to uh, Choctaw Nation on our way there. And yeah, I don't know. Uh, I asked my boyfriend's family who who actually do live in Oklahoma, like how present, visible, are Native Americans around, and it was, as I expected, uh, not very. It, it reminds me, I recently found out that Canada has to, when they do an event, they have to announce in the event that they're doing it on stolen land, and they have to name the tribe that the land was stolen from. Canada owns, I love Canada so Before much. every event. That's well, like so fucking dumb, and I love it so it's, it's dumb. It's one of those like performative things that from the outside looks like they're kind of progressive or at least self-aware of their imperial colonial past. But, you know, to everyone involved or everyone that like it, it's just something that becomes a performative like you know saying the national anthem singing the national anthem before a game it becomes like the equivalent to that yeah. we, we are yeah exactly we are on this land and we are about to do a concert but before then we have to honor the people of the tribe americans don't do that so um, to americans i feel like that's a foreign thing they just put up a bunch of stones and signs in the middle of streets or on the side of streets and then name towns after the tribes that they stole well i mean hohokus new jersey yeah the lenape in yeah, new jersey uh, a whole bunch of fucking yeah, no, Long, I mean, Long Island is just named after well, yeah, yeah, Long yeah. Island. Seattle, Cincinnati, Milwaukee. Like, these are all Native American names. Massachusetts. Or, yes, interpretations of Native names. Uh, also, with the Canadian aspect specifically, you know, the context is a little more stark in a way, but just because the one, the population of Canada is so much less in the United States. The Northern Territories where like First Nations people are somewhat clustered is like geographically isolated from other parts of Canada as well in a way that like both like highlights the issues that like still exist. Whereas in the United States, uh, a lot of people are really comfortable to like not even realize the Native American nations exist anymore. It's like... Or that the of, land was stolen. Yes. Yes. I guess so, that's yeah, the, like, that's uh, the like, jarring part about witnessing a Canadian event and having them do that. The immediate action is, oh my God, that's so nice that they're doing that. Yeah, well, and I well, think uh, Trudeau specifically... This Trudeau and I believe like somewhat his father preceding him uh, have this kind of liberal thing with the approach to First Nations people in Canada where they are 
very eager to make these sort of performative gestures gestures that they'll enjoy praise from other liberals about. Like, and I think even uh, current Trudeau, he has some sort of tattoo. Uh, I believe that is in like homage on his left butt cheek on on his arm uh, in dedication to a first nations people of Canada in a way that like, I think uh, if I'm like looking at it correctly, it's pretty cringe. Uh, (laughs) Really? You don't say. Yeah. Okay. I I think that's, that's a, so that's the other aspect there is that I think there's a specific Trudeau related liberal ignorance specifically with this subject there. And and for people who don't know, the Trudeau family in Canada is the equivalent of the Kennedys and Clintons had a baby and that liberal baby started an equally uh, liberal dynasty and it was the Trudeau dynasty. Um, I will also say on this uh, idea of America's and the American left's relationship to the indigenous issue, Uh-oh. if you will. Uh-oh. We, we're, we're, we're throwing down some issue talk. Yeah, well, I mean, okay. So every outside of England, every Anglo white nation does have the obvious uh, thing staring over it that they kind of are a settler colonial state that uh, was preceded on some degree of genocide. And um, one of the worst of those uh, nations also has about one of the best left stances on that issue, which would be Australia. Uh, which very definitively within the Australian left, the Australian version of it's sort of like Columbus Day, but it's also kind of like their, you know, national holiday because they aren't independent from England. So they don't have an Independence Day is very much within the left uh, this it's called Invasion Day. It's yeah. called Among the Left in Australia. And it's very much, uh, if you're a person in Australia, if you're an Aborigines in Australia, it's absolutely a syncretic, uh, unified front to our state is illegitimate and it should be destroyed. And the notion of like a socialist Australia has to be preceded on Aborigines uh, national sovereignty, which is uh, an interesting thing within the Anglosphere left. Well, yeah, I mean, I know um, casually I remember hearing stories of extended Canadian family talking about like indigenous people who live in parts of Quebec. And I believe like the way it was told was like the government went out there and provided all these homes in this area or whatever at some point in the 20th century. (laughs) Uh, This occurred. And then the uh, indigenous people um, moved into these homes and like basically like took all the doors off and just 
adjusted those homes back into like living domiciles that like more closely resembled what they had had there before <laughs> is, like, <laughs> is like what what the story is but it was like a very like sort of uh, I, I can get the impression that the like older uh, like white Canadian perspective was maybe like well they went out there and they gave them houses and stuff but then they like <laughs> just took all the doors off anyway you know because I mean that's just how they live out there on the land there so, uh, you know, I don't, I think though, you know, the government was trying to do a good thing. I don't think they were uh, trying to do bad. <laughs> like I can very much see that being a casual sort of attitude about it, which I believe is not an uncommon one for uh, people who live in these settler colonial states that uh, still can see the indigenous people they've displaced. It is very much a, a removal of sovereignty, I guess a reifying of the state sovereignty of the settlers to just expect the indigenous people to accept the presence and gifts as like charity. Yeah, exactly. It's very much, it's very much presented as a charitable, oh, we're going to teach you how to buckle your pants and give you clothes and shelter how dare you like white uh, man's burden baby yeah. yeah how dare you just resent us mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's also those same attitudes that fueled you know re-education schools and camps for native children and and things like that mm-hmm just so much bad stuff has happened from like the errant belief that uh, white people know what they're doing. <laughs> that's that's the other part of white supremacy is that it uh, presumes a supremacy in areas that white people have no business being in charge of, or at least whatever white people invented things like the kind of foods they love out in Oklahoma, guys. Let me just say, I've never seen so much white gravy be available in various forms. <laughs> white gravy? Yes, white gravy, which is just like basically flour and water and salt. <laughs> what is, it, wait, where is white gravy coming from? Well, actually, I mentioned white gravy because I mentioned the re-education schools because a feature of at least assimilation schools in the United States was encouraging people to give up the food customs of their country of origin mm. and replace it with new American ideas of food. And they had this over emphasis on white foods as being good. So you yeah. had a, a lot of this white gravy, this white sauce was a very... Yeah, popular. that was a uh, thing during the Depression a lot. Yeah. yeah. Where, like, uh, the early government programs would give these government-issued uh, cookbooks to poor people for how to uh, eat on a budget. And it would essentially be, like, if you talk to one fucking Italian Nona in uh, America in the 1920s, you get a much better recipe that was more nutritionally valuable for less money. 
And uh, instead it was like, okay, so boil white bread for four hours and mix in some more flour and like heavy cream. Yes. Yeah. And that was like every fucking recipe. Well, yeah, it was like this weird thing too, where they were like, white is good. White foods are good. um, It was a lot of poor people should eat bland food because that was the uh, Calvinist punishment. Yes. Well, and also, also there's like a very funny, like they did this obviously also with peoples from um, geographically the Southwest of the United States. Right. So indigenous peoples of those places and of what is now Mexico being told, put down these tortillas and pick up some white bread, like a real American. Where, like, now in actuality, they're being told to give up the more nutritionally sound food stuff basic in favor of a more complex and less healthy thing because it's more modern and American. You know, it also had all these weird ideas about cleanliness. Like, it wasn't just that they had contrived an idea of a white American persona. It was like this new persona was clean and free of the tethers of wherever they came from, etc. Which was also a very popular idea about America. She came here to be brand new. Then they were like, hey, people who are already here, y'all better act brand new (laughs) in this land you've always inhabited. Okay, van life. Have you watched Nomadland yet? I did watch most of it. I, uh, I fell asleep on it a little bit. Yeah. No shade to Frances McDormand, Mm-mm. who is a fine actress. Just, you know, it is still a movie that is very much about a certain kind of white person. How could it happen to me, a white, yeah. <laughs> that the American dream did not work out? You know what I mean? Like, it's a little... Inactive. I've not watched that, but I have watched uh, the one with... American the Honey. Yeah, the one with but, the dude who, like, shed his dick. We'll get to it, but I think going from Nomadland to American Honey, I think, is a good package. I agree. I think the person who wrote the screenplay was Chinese, famously, for the Nomadland. And I wasn't sure if that meant... Yes. She was, like, the first Asian director to win Best Director, I think. I have no idea. Or Asian Asian woman to win. So, yeah, her... And also China, like, disowned her because this wasn't... um, communist enough and she spoke out against china i think okay so this is the anti-communist movie (laughs) this is Um, the western propaganda you guys are discussing well yeah i mean and i don't know if i see that in the movie itself i think it might have just been her statements alone saying it but i know that the movie itself it was just sad would you agree with that bunny yeah that yeah it it really didn't go anywhere i mean that maybe that was intentional to go along with the theme of just the yearly cycles that these van life people go on is in the holiday season they do the amazon seasonal job which 
pays them a bunch of money for the three months that they work. But then they're, the, yeah, then they're fucked. Uh. That, well, then they're fucked or they like that they don't have a steady job because it allows them to van life it for yeah, the there rest is of the a year. Yeah, there is a little bit of like romantic notions there. One of the themes that I'm going to talk about in American Honey, van life, I feel, is a vehicle. And I mean that in both senses, a vehicle to talk about American precarity. And I think in Nomadland, the use of Amazon as this kind of precarious seasonal job and then moving without a home from all these places based on their weather, because that's what they're doing. They're moving south during the cold season and they work their way up north the warmer it gets because like they're in a Arizona or New Mexico for a good portion of the early part and then they move up to California and that's where oh. she like meets civilization and and then they, you know, work their way back up north to, I think, Seattle during the the fall season. And then they do it again. That was my question for you hmm? about the movie uh, was, what is the buffalo? Okay, so for American Honey, Bunny, did you watch American Honey? I did not. Okay, Stephen, did you end up reading the uh, New York Times article that... Uh, essentially, like, inspired American Honey. No, I did not. So, the buffalo in American Honey, it's not exactly spelled out in the movie, but the buffalo in American Honey, the thing that they're chasing is not getting arrested. Um, <laughs> Set it up for Bunny, then the Okay, so, the Bunny, you know Newsies? Yes. It's sort of like that in this weird postmodern age of ours. But if you understand the idea behind the actual newsies not the disney newsies is they were desperately poor orphan immigrant children whose only uh, ability to eat had to deal with hawking newspapers on 110th street and they would uh stab another child if that child started selling newspapers on the same corner you get that basic idea but in this case they're selling magazine subscriptions door to door in the early 2000s Ah, I see. And it follows one character who's kind of an, not an orphan, I would say, but like a homeless girl. Well, she runs her away. parents are dead, so there's that. <laughs> she runs away from home to well, go I mean, with Shia LaBeouf. Yeah, I mean, it, it's mostly based in the Midwest, and this is totally a thing that absolutely exists, uh, according to this one New York Times article that myself and the screenwriter and director of this film mm -hmm. read. But yeah, it's mostly based in the Midwest and there are these farmed out multi-level marketing contracted out gangs that start mm -hmm. from some contractor that takes a bunch of sales requests from, you know, Condé Nast, Time Warner, you know, all the major magazine companies. And it's like, hey, we need to fill out these subscriptions because everyone's 
just reading shit online nowadays and also uh the ability to do uh telemarketing has kind of gone down so fill out these subscriptions they take that and farm it out farm it out and suddenly you're just like predatorily like hiring a bunch of teenagers from the midwest who uh, run away from home shitty home lives and are just trying to not die homeless and also they're addicted to meth. And uh, that's the business model that exists. Combine that with like multi-level marketing, that kind of like grind cult, like that I ground for this view kind of culty thing. Uh, So one thing from the movie that appeared directly in the article, Steve, Mm. was the uh, part where they made the guys who brought in the like lowest two numbers for that week they made them fight each other oh shit that was one of the most brutal thing in, yeah and that is directly from the new york times oh article. man that hurt to watch yeah that, that's... what they what they would do the two people that sold the least amount of magazine subscriptions during the week would end up fighting to the knockout like bare knuckle fighting until somebody was either bleeding on the ground and couldn't get up or they were just knocked out cold and that was a weekly ritual between the two lowest selling people which i thought was a brilliant way to show the competitive capitalistic spirit um in its like barest violent forms but apparently it's just pulled directly from this article. And also, I will say, uh, one of the things I did after I graduated living in New York and I couldn't find a job was I ended up (laughs) fucking for three weeks. I made literally zero dollars on this. But those dudes who, if you live in New York, they're like, hey, do you want to buy a new power supplier? And then Mm -hmm. if you ask them about it, they don't know what they're selling. I worked for them for... uh, Three weeks. It was a green energy, right? I don't fucking remember. But I remember when he did this because we were living together at the time. He walked in after the first day and was like, oh, it's a pyramid scheme. I asked him what shape this business model was in and he gave me a pyramid. No, I remember like the first day I'm talking to my mentor and it is like this where you have your like morning business meeting that's like repeating a bunch of like pre-scripted like sales lines that sound corny as fuck, but it's like, no, you just repeat that to all people and 10 of them will go with it. You know, and uh, just like doing these like dumbass pump ups and like oh this was our number one seller this week and blah 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 yeah no and it was all stupid as fuck so I remember talking to him and I'm like okay so you understand like objectively how (laughs) this is all set up I'm just trying to explain it in the most neutral way possible my first day of like going through and just asking basic questions I'm like you understand this is very much seems to be a pyramid scheme. I just laid it out. And he's like, yeah, no, it's like you want to be at the top of the pyramid. And I'm like, okay, cool. (laughs) (laughs) It was just like, it was so awesome. He was like, that's a good way to visualize it. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> just like, I was like, yeah. So like, what you've described to me, this is like what some people might naively, if they didn't understand what you understood about this, <laughs> they would call this a pyramid scheme. And he's like, you're right. This is like a scheme in the shape of a pyramid. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> So okay, so this but this was American all honey. without the um. So yeah, if you read that New York Times article, though, the guys they interview are the enforcers who are like hired by these crews. They're called Mag Crews, which was the original title of American Honey was Mag Crew, but they're called Mag Crews, and they do hire enforcers, which are just dudes who are like to beat the shit out of whoever the manager of the maker tells them to beat the shit out. Mm -hmm. And that was an element also like kind of glossed over but present and Mm -hmm. like this whole culture of like cultish violence was definitely a thing. I I love that element to it. uh, Yeah. Because it had such a, a raw element of, you know, exploitative labor equals violence in the most literal way. So how does Shia LaBeouf recruit people? Because I thought that was just goddamn fascinating. He basically just seduces women, or at least in this instance, the main character was seduced by a rat-tailed Shia LaBeouf (laughs) in a Walmart. Well, okay. Where he flirts with her and brings her like to the van and was like, I'll give you a kiss tomorrow if you just join us on our van adventure. For me, that is a little more incidental, I guess. Well, I mean, it seemed like a repeat thing where he used sexuality to seduce vulnerable women to come along on these van journeys where they would be integrated into the pyramid scheme, which then ended up being a prostitution scheme because all the women were also doing prostitution instead of selling magazines because it paid more. And they mostly worked in truck stops. Right. I don't know. Like, okay, so she went out, incidentally ran into Shia LaBeouf, was like, that was interesting, went back, got sexually abused by the dude she was living with again, realized, oh, this sucks ass and I got to get the fuck out of here. And what with Shia LaBeouf? I don't think that he was so sexy was the main driving uh, force. I mean, it did seem like it kept her hooked and she was yeah. always looking for attention from him or a relationship from him. Yeah, no, that throughout was definitely... The, and he yeah. would, like, ride the motorcycle along the van and, like, blow her kisses. Yeah, there was certainly, like, that element there. I just feel like, for the most part, hey, we're going to Kansas City tomorrow, and if you want to come to Kansas City with us, just show up at this address tomorrow and she goes back to her place to her fucking awful lifestyle like wait like place she's living and it's like you know what fuck it i'm going to kansas city bunny you can see the relationship between that and nomad land where both really hinge on this van precarity i mean they don't live in the van like francis mcdermott does they go from shitty motel to shitty motel along the Midwest, but they're spending most of their days in vans 
to get to the shitty motel. And there was this element of no home, but also like job on the run. And I wondered what you thought of that element in terms of your own experience, but plus the experience of watching Nomadland. What I think is interesting is uh, something like Nomadland was focused on, look at these people suffering. (laughs) But there was like these good American people were also like, there's this idea that like, look at what we're doing with this freedom. Uh, yeah, yeah. Of, you said romanticism. Like, yeah, like, like it's it's very like, despite these things, like there is something nice about being untethered in this certain way that's implied a little bit where, um, yeah, in a situation where people actually were free to choose a life that, uh, like where it wasn't a factor of people being hemmed in by circumstance and opportunity or the lack thereof. Like, yeah, I'd love it if it was just a bunch of bon vivants who are like, yeah, man, we love this. <laughs> like modern nomads. Like if that, you know what I mean? Like there mm-hmm. is, that would be cool if that was the reality of it. Yeah, if that, um, those were the conditions of their freedom. Yes. That type of lifestyle, you know, similar to like Call of the Wild, where there's a certain mm-hmm. level of privilege to being able to just drop everything and, and go to Alaska yes. to die. But this seemed more like, I don't know, a failure of state institutions and the, I don't know, post-Fordist economy. But it it seemed like the whole impotence for her going on van life was the factory shut down. Yeah. And the town that she lived in went from having 10,000 people to zero, one person, and she was the last person. So she's like, fuck it. My uh, trauma of everyone leaving my husband losing his job and dying i'm just going to take all that trauma put it in a bag throw it in a van and then just deal with it on the road and the movie seemed to showcase that trauma being coped with unfolding in different ways her distrust of people or distrust of getting close to relationships and all of these symptoms of precarity or symptoms of a trauma that follows with having your main stability taken away from you. The thing that I I did see an article in Jacobin that said there was no enemies in Nomadland, which was the failure of the movie. And I thought that was an astute observation. I have a question real quick Mm. as a comparison point between Nomadland and American Honey. What I can gather from hearing both descriptions is that the structure of both movies is we start with a character who is outside this uh, lifestyle that previously exists a part of that. Mm-hmm. And then through certain circumstances, they're thrust in this lifestyle and then they uh, slowly integrate to this new lifestyle. Correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a van. 
Okay, so yeah, you identify the main character of Nomadland as being kind of very much forced into this lifestyle with a essential proletarianization and Mm -hmm. uh, sudden interruption of stability materially and economically. Uh, so from watching American Honey, the pre-existing society of the mag crews is very much some people with like an unstable back life. Mm-hmm. Is that the same case in uh, No Bad Plan? Because the one guy I know is featured very much seems to be a person. I, I don't know his name, but I know he's a real person who kind of plays himself in the movie in Nomadland. Uh, very much seems to be kind of a person who chose this lifestyle, mm. I'll say. And so I'm wondering, is there the same level of like economic precarity among the people within the lifestyle already? Or is it kind of this wandering hippie into the wild sort of lifestyle? I mean, definitely a good deal of the latter, not in the main character, but in the people she meets. Which is, yeah, what I was asking. Yeah, like, which I'm under the impression that the actual film itself, uh, several of the people that Frances McDormand character meets on the road are not actors. They're actual van people. Yeah, I know. I I happened in my, like, research of the movie. I, I know one of them is, like, kind of one of the people who started that on the Internet, like, started the blogs before yes. YouTube existed. I think there's a little bit of a sort of through this main character who's had like literally, as uh, Steve said, like the town disappear around her and like her husband die and like, et cetera. It's sort of very, you know, like implied like, oh, but isn't this like so beautiful uh, that like this exists and kind of like this idea that this could only exist in a place like America. Yeah, I will say this about American Honey, I think embraces its bleakness. Mm-hmm. Well, I, the one thing I will say before we move on is that Frances McDermott, to your point, is given the choice to stop living that lifestyle. Okay. And she declined. Mm-hmm. See, I feel like if the main character of American Honey had a reasonable choice to stop doing that, uh, what she's doing, she would immediately take it. Yeah, yeah, especially after <laughs> the, the prostitution. Yeah, um, I mean, it's not romanticized. And that's the thing that I really like about American Honey. Like, and that's why I recommended it to you, because for that reason, I find it to be far superior as a critique of the precarity that exists in both. But it's also, I will say, it's not romanticized either positively or negative. It's also not romanticized in this tragic Christ-like sacrifice or whatever the fuck. Like, she ekes out a space to live in. She has a social group at the end of the movie. She has a place where she's operating, however precarious that might be. She's not starving to death on the street. It works for her. It's not great. It just is. And that's something I like as well. To go back to the thing I read about 
there being enemies or no enemies in no man yeah. land i think that what they were talking about was that it doesn't demonize amazon as this malevolent corporation that you know it doesn't have a critique of the kind of precarious situation it puts its workers in and actually points to that as a positive aspect that the people then use to fund their lifestyle. Whereas um, American Honey has the level of subtlety of Snowpiercer. <laughs> uh, the, the enemy in American Honey is amazing. It, <laughs> American Elvis, Honey rules in that. It's, regard, it's yeah. Elvis Presley's granddaughter, right? Yeah, I think it's Elvis Presley's Do granddaughter. Do they explicitly say that? Because I missed that, but that's hilarious. Well, no, the actress. The actress that oh. plays the oh, okay. head manager. Okay, and Bunny, listen to... There's this one scene that I'll never forget. And the main character... She's so girl boss. Well, yeah, she's very girl boss. Her and Shia LaBeouf ride around in like a Corvette next to the van to give you a kind of like class distinction between like this manager or petite bourgeois small business owner that's carousing these proletariats from who herself city to is city. existing in this insane existence yes like she herself is in this weird space and she's a do this all. she's like a bleach blonde woman and there's this one point where she calls in as like a power play this main character who is mixed race or black or yeah i i, I mean i'd she's say the she's only, styled, solidly biracial she's the only biracial character and that plays a part in this scene because the main girl boss is in a Confederate flag bikini and she's laying on a pile of money on her bed in this ratty motel and she gets up and Shia LaBeouf is putting cocoa butter all up and down her body on his hands and knees as she's talking to this main character girl and it's played off in like almost slow motion her just dominating this woman for not having enough money that day wasn't that yeah. the context she doesn't yeah, she didn't I mean, have enough money or she like was giving her a warning i mean it's she, just such a great depiction of the like king of shit mountain mm -hmm. like it's just such a great depiction of just being an absolute dictator of your own space and that space is so fucking meaningless literally just fascist the fact that she's in a confederate flag bikini yeah and talking to the only biracial person in the entire movie but okay so i will say this this needs to be touched on real quick when we're talking about how nomadland has a lot of actors who are basically playing themselves who are these like longtime van life blockers in the case of American Honey, they basically picked up a bunch of drunk homeless kids to play these guys. Yeah. From what I can tell, a lot of the casting for the other guys in the van crew were just like these kids who were like underage drinking who the casting director drove up to and was like, 
Yeah, you want to be in a movie and show your dick? <laughs> what do you think of that depiction of what I would describe as complete evil? Just a level of malevolence that was not anywhere in Nomadland. There was no Confederate flag bikini clad Yeah, there's woman. no bad guy in Nomadland. Because really the theme is all about uh, resilience, right? American resilience. And uh, that's what we're focused on. And we're not going to talk about what created these conditions in the first place. Or like, as I said before, how much cooler all of that shit would be if it really was simply a choice of a free citizen to live uh, this life. Also... I wish it was a little more about kind of uh, the other aspect of like the van life stuff is that it is very, as Marlo said, like these people are often like, here's my like little industry around my van life. And um, these sort of like very micro ideas about like sustainability and mm -hmm. like it's almost like they took sort of the ethos people have when they're like literally actually camping right which i believe is like you're not supposed to like leave your trash everywhere <laughs> yes you're supposed to leave it better uh than you found it etc no uh, they're they're basically taking captain planet and thinking that's a way to solve capitalism it, it's it is the burning man kind of ethics well um, yeah well and put also into like, practice and i knew a lot of van people coming from the burning man but also it's this, um, yeah, also it's this like incredibly navel gazing thing where these people act like sometimes people are taking these incredible, going to the incredible lengths to maintain their like no waste situation to a degree where it's like, how does this matter in the grand scheme of things? Your your little passion project about how you individually, through like frankly extraordinary measures, <laughs> like one, it doesn't matter, and two, the infrastructure and social backing that you need to maintain that lifestyle. Yeah. probably creates more waste than you're saving. Well, yeah, precisely. And also, uh, with all of these things, like, it's ableist. <laughs> like, these ideas are not, like, available to literally everyone. Like, should we pretend like they are, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I'm always like... Okay, van couple, what are we talking about here? Macro, like, is everyone supposed to do this? Is everyone supposed to have a van and be in a tiny home and whatever? No, like doing this, you're inherently reliant on like kind of piggybacking on operating existing infrastructure that is not, it's not the van life. <laughs> Which is not to say again that I don't, I do think it would be cool if uh, it was just like a bunch of people just decided to be weird camping people in the United States because our basic needs are taken care of. <laughs> so people have more. Yeah. On the one hand, you could not have a national highway system if your society consisted of only van people. 
Yeah. On the other hand, if every person who existed required one van, that wouldn't necessarily solve global warming. This is the kind of shit that I would always hear in, in Burning Man spaces when I traverse them was this idealistic notion that themselves doing these actions were transformative and revolutionary acts in and of themselves that if everyone took as a model for the larger population that the world would be this magically better place and i always found that to be for one thing not true and yeah as bunny was saying like this kind of disingenuous you know, the same kind of call uh, or into the wild kind of notion that we must return to this primitive state in order to reach a better future. Whereas I think someone like Marx and Marxism would argue that you have to work through capitalism to make it to the next state, socialism or communism, and, it, and that you shouldn't have this nostalgia for the past or this return to primitivist ideas that particularly Nomadland seemed to romanticize. I mean, not romanticize in terms of like, you know, we watched her take a shit in a bucket, but mm. romanticize in terms of like a, a, a national identity that everyone was that was in van life was participating in. And you never got a real like resolution on that. Yeah. And I don't know. The only resolution that you did get was that she thought it was better than like moving in with her boyfriend's family. Yeah, which I think is trying to say something about like freedom and independence. Like stupid shit. <laughs> like via this experience, she's like come to value those those things more. So she's gonna like choose this instead of that. And I mean whatever. Also though, the the thing I think is the unspoken thing is she got and what is going through everybody's veins here is getting a little bit of that hobo vibe and loving it okay people don't talk about the hobo vibes right and i'm talking about i've got a satchel tied to a stick and i'm jumping on a train hobos uh <laughs> the the spirit of the american hobo in the sense of this person doesn't want to be connected to society's rules and um is living that is off an the element thread. of disco elysium i will say that i think and this might be a hot take uh i think it would have been a much better movie if she had settled down with her boyfriend in the end, if she had come to the conclusion that she was done with van life and had, you know, come to terms with her solitude and her trauma and been like, ah, oh, you know, living with this boyfriend does seem like a more attractive thing. I think the uh, message would have been infinitely different. The movie would have come across as much different, but the movie would have been better because it showed change. It showed transformation and it showed, you know, some narrative like arc. But my problem with the movie was that she just remains this static character who's just kind of going where the winds take her or where the seasons change. And that she has a bunch of things happen to her. But in the end, she prefers the road because, as you said, freedom, I guess. Because freedom, standing 
on the plains looking, gazing at the horizon. Wind is happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. America, freedom. Yeah, okay. also- snap, snap, no, snap, 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 to- snap. Poetry, 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 poetry. I just love, from what I've gathered from this, the message of this movie is the American dream. Can it offer you some economic uh life stability no what can it offer you a pretty sunset from the highway or or a van it can get you a van yeah where you can watch a pretty sunset from the highway or from the place you've pulled the van over and uh set up your little setup and you shit in a bucket Mm -hmm. that's the only thing that anybody like like that's what we should look forward to with america is uh it can't offer you anything at all it absolutely it can only offer you it looks nice sometimes when the sun is setting i agree with you i think it offers you a look into van life and that's the point of the movie it's just advertising it's just an advertisement it's a romanticization and it is you know bought and paid for by uh amazon because you know how many people are going to sign up for Amazon seasonal? Well, and the, I mean, that's my point, is Amazon's advertisement is don't worry about any sort of economic or living stability. You can just live out of a fucking van. That's all you need. You, Yeah, you, that's all you need. You that's can all shit, you should you expect. Can shit in a bucket. Shit in a fucking bucket you and work at Amazon. You can shit in a bucket, Amazon. pee in a bottle, it, because it's about the friends you make along the way. Yeah, no, that's what's really important, not being able to sleep on a nice bed or, you know, know where your next meal's coming from. But, you know, you got some cool, quirky characters you meet on the roadside. And I will say that I felt a far more kindred to the friends made along the way in American Honey. They were fucking great friends. They were real as fuck. They weren't like necessarily like good people as characters but you know if there was some collective action involved they would absolutely torch that corvette like if they could just like be like oh yeah we there's more of us than there are of them let's strategize together and like think of them as the bad people they would absolutely like a tear that confederate flag bikini wearing woman like limb for limb they would chop off Shia LaBeouf's fucking rat tail and hang him upside down and then torch the fuck out of that Corvette and for the entire movie I was like why are these people not torching that Corvette or Charger or whatever trashy sports car they had because it seemed like a Marxist endpoint to that entire story would lead to them taking over. The Marxist endpoint is the fetishization of the system, though. That's the endpoint, is they believed in all of it. Yeah, and I'm saying that with revolutionary actions and theory. This um, is a Zizekian movie, though, and they are the ideology, and they are doing ideology for the movie. That's part of it. It exists because of the ideology. Well, do you see why I picked these two movies together? Yeah, no. It's a good conversation we had. (laughs) 
<laughs> I really love American Honey. I think there's another way to think of this in a more abstract way, but this came out right before Trump got elected, and Nomadland came out right after Trump left office. And it does seem to show this arc of how to feel about precarity in one instance. And specifically American precarity. Yeah, that it's beforehand, it was like this kind of evil thing that also led to comradeship and a displacement, but also a, you know, clear evil authoritarian figure that everybody in the audience should hate because they're racist, vile fascists who are stealing money from the working poor only to enrich themselves. And in Nomadland, you just love American precarity for its imminence and transcendental beauty because that's the only game in town. There's no escaping it. You live it, you breathe it, you let the empire fill your lungs and you let out a sigh. This is America. I don't know. I I also want to admit that, uh, you know, I I myself can get rather swept up in romantic ideas of a cool mobile life. (laughs) But then I have to admit that why does that appeal to me so much? Because securing housing is such a nightmare. Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's why that appeals to me so much. Not in and of itself necessarily. I don't romanticize that because I'm different. You're built different, Marlo. Yeah. Yeah, The only mobile life I want is Hal's Moving Castle. (laughs) Yeah. I love to live in the delightful mind of Hayao Miyazaki. Who doesn't? Who wouldn't? I actually have a built-in character for myself I've come mm-hmm. up with, yeah. which is a, uh obese man who is constantly gluttonously eating, but also I have a beard that is continuously growing that catches the, like, foodstuffs from my mouth, and then, like, other, like, poor villagers eat from this conveyor belt of a constantly growing beard with uh, food crumbs. That's my uh, Miyazaki character. There you go. You heard it here first, folks. I think it's whimsical, but also allegorical. (laughs) Which is what you want. I do. That is what you want. And I do love me some whimsy. Yeah. Whimsy's great. I love whimsy. We should watch a whimsy movie next time. What's a what's a good whimsy movie? <laughs> Not the Wasp Network, though. I have been pushing that for a while. But what? yeah, Wasp Network. It's about Cuban spies in America in the nineties. Oh yeah, Wasp Network. Well, that was a good good discussion, guys. We did it, guys. Absolutely. Hashtag van life. Hashtag van life. That song, I, Matt. I'm get a, Matt, put I'm the song. A, yeah. <laughs> This is America. Yeah, guys, join our Patreon. (laughs) We'll we'll do a tour. We'll do a tour. In in a van. It'll fund our van tour. Mm -hmm. It'll be pink.
As we walk through purgatory Flames flicker for coming winter As we walk through purgatory Stop between seasons